I'd also like to extend an invitation or a welcome this morning. My name is Josh Wall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth. Um, and you're in the, catching us in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We've been working our way through Ephesians over the last bit. And, and last week we had our, our uh, pastor at Newground, a church we planted five years ago, six years ago now, I believe, uh, down in Caledonia. Uh, and he was here and talked about the dividing walls of hostility and called us as the church to repent and to tear down the walls before us. Uh, so we invite you to come and listen and, and hear from the Lord from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administrations of God, God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. There is power in a story. If you think about moments of your life that have been meaningful and impactful, honestly, whether they are high or low, they're part of a story. They're part of a broader narrative trend and theme that rolls through our lives is that we are people, we are creatures in many ways that understand, process, and think in story. The book of Ephesians as a whole, right? The book of Ephesians is one that has a lot of rich theology and Paul is giving clear direction and Paul is explaining and writing the world as it is and as it should be. And as Paul elaborates on all of this, uh, we, we get to this point where it feels like he turns to talk a bit about his story and what it looks like. And I think he does that on purpose. There's a, there's a psychologist who, who I've been reading lately and, and rather like some of his work named Jonathan Haidt, and he has a quote uh, that says that people are narrative-making machines. 
that deep down within us, as much as we like and are influenced by data and information, at the end of the day, what people do is we tell, shape, recreate, and tell stories. And this is true within all of Paul's work, within all of our work. If you think of the moments that you've had, they are shaped and directed by story. So, so this section, last week we were talking, and when Pastor Mike was up here, he was talking about the need to tear down the walls of hostility, which were physical barriers that were placed in the second temple to keep the insiders in and the outsiders out. And the call then is that we need to tear those down because as, as Pastor John prayed, we are one in Christ and we are united. And then Paul goes out of this and he takes this left turn into story. So... Let's take a little bit and we're going to try to understand what's happening in the story and what's happening in this context. Paul begins by telling, talking about story, I think, to show the truth of his argument, right? In many ways, there is an inherent understanding that many of us have that when things are, it's, it's not true until it's happened to you, you could say, right? That the deep influences of things are personal. And so Paul takes the conversation out of the abstract theological and he brings it down to himself and he talks about mystery. Now, mystery is a tricky word. It's not that tricky of a word. Uh, but mystery is a tricky word in Greek because it means something different in Greek than what it means for us. Mystery in English tends to mean something that's dark, it's obscure, it's hidden, it's nefarious often. We have spy novels around mysteries. We have detective novels around mysteries. We have a variety of things that occur around mysteries, but they're always hidden, secret, secretive, right? They are bad, almost inherently bad. Mysteries are not good things for the most part in the way our world defines them and describes them. Mysteries uh, tend towards the dark. But mystery in Greek means something different. See, in the Greek and Greco-Roman world, uh, mystery was really a deeper sense of truth. Mystery, uh, when they would reference it, was the idea that their world, for the most part, in the ancient world as a whole, was a place that, in comparison to ours, would feel and function rather small. So the ancient world, one without the internet, one without television, one without cell phones, one where uh, your world and your direct interactions were much more intimate, but much closer and smaller as well. So they knew and understood that there was a bunch of things that they don't know and understand. So there was this sense of there was this unfolding mystery that were out there. Right? The Greco-Roman religions had, had oracles and people that would come and you would go and they would tell you the mysteries of the future and of life and of faith and all these things. There was this sense that there was always some deeper truth that was further back there. And when Paul begins to reference the mysteries of what's going on, he's referencing that, that there is a deep truth. When he talks about mystery, it's not dark or mysterious. It is an unfolding of God's truth, of Christ's truth to him, right? That's what we get when we get to verses, verses three, you know? And it says that this mystery be made known to me by revelation, as I've already written about briefly. Or again in seven, uh, yeah, seven, that I've become a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace through the working of his power. Paul talks about mystery in ways that's hard for us to understand. But Paul's not really talking about mystery. Paul is talking fundamentally about himself. Paul is talking about faith, and Paul is talking about his conversions through mystery, his appealing to deep truth. 
If you've heard the story or are familiar with Paul, if you've been around the Bible for a while, you've heard conversations, and many of us know Paul's story of conversion, that Paul, who was at the time called Saul, was an active persecutor of the church, that he would go around and he would have believers killed, that he would have groups disbanded, that he would have people sent to jail and tortured. And one time on the road, while he is going to do this, he has a vision and God reveals himself. This is the mystery, right? God reveals himself in a blinding, flashing light into some deeper sense of truth, and Paul's life is transformed. Paul goes blind, he can't see. For good reason, he kind of freaks out a little bit. And he gets led to a town where it was told that someone will come and pray over you and you will have vision again. And the light that appears before him is Christ. And Christ says, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life, in an instant, is transformed, right? Paul has access and revelation to this moment of a mystery that pulls him in. And then there's actually a second conversion if you think about Paul's life and structure. And we talk about this one less. We talk about the big flashing moment often. We talk about the moment of conversion often if we want to think of it like that. But then Paul actually out of that goes through what functionally is a three-year discipleship process where he is living with people, where he is sharing meals with believers, where he is suddenly in relationship and conversation and community with believers and suddenly there is this deeper longing to share the gospel, to share the revelation that he had. Suddenly things have changed. Paul's first conversion is to faith. Paul's second conversion is to mission and mission to the world. We sometimes think of Paul and we think that he's converted and then he has like a week and then suddenly he's sent out and he goes and he does all these amazing and miraculous things. But that's not the case. Paul was someone who was converted, who has this mysterious, divine, deep truth interaction. And then Paul has this period of formation of living where he's shaped. And the whole time, he's shaped by this deep truth, this this mystery, which is what gets laid out in verse 6, right? As Steve just read for us. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share, share, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery is really an open secret. As Paul experiences and interacts with it and encounters it, Paul is taking And Paul is told to take what is often viewed as as a mountaintop experience that you had to work through the process to get to, and Paul brings it down to the people. Paul's mystery becomes the open secret. Now, the challenge for some of us in regards to this is we kind of know this, right? If you've spent time in church, if you've spent time around this, this doesn't feel like a big idea. It doesn't feel incredibly consequential, You're like, yeah, heard this one before. It doesn't feel necessarily incredibly deep. But I think that is a temptation we need to resist. Because in Paul and what we see out of the early church is how deeply impactful this is. You know, it's hard to understate how radical of a notion this is and what it means for us. See, in the ancient world, the Jews broadly, 
And, and the Jews at this time, they would have been spread throughout the Mediterranean world, right? So they're centered around Israel, which is on the west side of the Mediterranean Sea. And they were spread out throughout the entire region. They were concentrated there. They both go, sorry, the east side. I get confused left and right when I'm trying to think of maps. Uh, they're on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. They would have been spread out to the east through the Middle East going towards Asia. They would have been spread out along the Mediterranean to the west as they went that way. And everywhere that the Jews went, everywhere that the Jews went, they lived in a world apart from everyone else around them. They lived apart. We see this again and again. Jews broadly in the world and society at this time, you stuck to your own. If you were Jewish, you stuck with other Jews. If you go to places in Europe, in the Middle East, you can still find Jewish quarters that have been around for centuries, for millennia. There are Jewish quarters. There are Jewish sections. You walk in, and this is the ancient Jewish part, right? I've been to some of those. I went to Greece in college on a, on a Bible study tour, and I went to Thessaloniki, which is where the book of Thessalonians would have been written. And you go there, and we had a tour guide, and he was a Christian, and he was showing us these things and explaining biblical archaeology to us. And he goes, this is the Jewish quarter. And we walked in, and it was its own courtyard, its own gate. There was one way in and one way out. It was its own separate community, entirely isolated from everything else in the city. We have, a, we have a photo. We got that up, right, Ken? Yeah. So this is of Rome. And this is a, a little bit later, so it's not exactly contemporaneous with when Paul's writing, but it's a few hundred years later. And this is the Jewish quarter of Rome, right? You can see it right there. It's got walls all the way around the side. It's up against a the river. There's clear gates in and out. The Jews tended almost exclusively to live apart. They had an understanding uh, of religion and of theology that their understanding that God came to them first and came to them only and then through them as the vessel, the rest of the world would be blessed, right? So it wasn't exclusive, but they were the bearers and the transmitters of that good news, right? You can see the understanding that the Jews had in regards to the world in the fact that they have words that mean both Jewish and Gentile. Gentile means everybody else, buddy. Gentile means the rest of us. Gentile means the people. Gentile means you, me, and everyone that you know, unless they're Jewish. The Jewish understanding of the world was deeply bifurcated and divided. And so when Paul stands and says that the Gentiles are in, it is scandalous. We actually see it. I think it took me a long time to realize this is in here, but in the book of Acts. So in the book of Acts, which is the actions and activities of the apostles shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles are out doing things. And this is an account that Peter has. Peter has a vision with a sheet that comes down from heaven where he's told everything is clean. And then he gets summoned to a centurion's house. And, and that is part of a broader narrative. But the, the line I like is he gets summoned to a house and this is a big deal for Peter in ways that it took me well into life to realize that it was a big deal. And so in Acts chapter 10, verse 27, it says, while he was talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people in the centurion's house. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. May I ask why you sent for me? even on its fundamental level, Peter, 
who followed Jesus around, who was lockstep behind the guy, hasn't been in a Gentile house, doesn't associate with those people. And so when Paul says that the Gentiles are part of the body of Christ, that we are united together, it changes everything. And I mean that literally. For the early church, this notion changes everything. These are people that go out and begin the foundation of what becomes the the dominant religion in the world, the largest religion in the world. These are people that sacrifice and die. These are people whose lives are radically changed and encountered because of Jesus and because of what he did. There's a scholar that another one that I've been reading as of late named Larry Hurtado who has a book called The Destroyer of Gods in which he lays out some of these things. You know, as he's talking about, uh, as Paul is talking about the mystery of Christ as the open secret and how that changes everything, Hurtado shows that the ancient church was a creation of a unique manifestation of identity. And they do it primarily in four ways. Uh, Dr. Hurtado, H-U-R-T-A-D-O, It's hard to pronounce sometimes, especially if you've had two cups of coffee in the morning. But Larry Hurtado makes the point that there's four things that the early church did that was so distinctly radical and different than anything else. First, they were the first multiracial organization that existed in the world. They were the first multiracial one, and that's pretty true. When you look at the history, when you look at the documentation, the Jews' understanding of segregation was not just theirs. It was the dominant cultural force at the time. The Romans hung out with the Romans. The Cretes hung out with the Cretes. The Jews hung out with the Jews. That's the way it was. But because of the gospel, because of this open secret, the church becomes a place where Ethiopians are hanging out with Jews, where Egyptians are hanging out with Jews, where Jews are hanging out with Cretes, where suddenly you would go and there was a unity around something other than race or ethnicity or what town you grew up in. First was multiracial. The second one that really struck them and made the early church something incredibly unique uh, on the world stage was their care for the poor. We actually have accounts and letters of people from Romans writing to other Romans saying basically, hey, buddy, why aren't you doing the job because you have these Jews that are taking care of all of your poor people for you. The Roman state should be providing for some of this. We have documentation that shows that early Christians had such a radical understanding of, of tending to the poor and the needy that they just sold and gave away things because there was people who had need and they had met a risen Christ who said the stuff that you have has value, but giving it away to those in need has immensely more. They also had, uh, the third thing is they also had a unique understanding of the dignity of life. The early Christians were the first ones to articulate and really put on paper the idea that we have the image of God within us and that all people have worth and value. And that impacted them in a couple of unique ways. On one hand, The early Christians were pacifists. They did not fight. They did not create war. 
We know this in part because shortly after Jesus, 30, 40 years after Jesus, there is a revolt within Israel and Rome comes in like Romans want to do to crush and destroy. And Rome wipes out anyone they think could be, might be, should be a threat. It's what Rome does. They're really good at it. Rome comes and they wipe everybody out except the Christians because they refused to fight because they said God's image is in all of us and who am I to take the life of someone else? In the time when the scriptures are being written and documented, Israel gets decimated to the point that the Colosseum exists based off of the plunder that they got from Israel during this time. Rome wipes everybody out except for these Christian pacifists. They also were so strongly against the idea of infanticide. Now, back in this day, there was no abortion. There was nothing like that that occurred. So what would happen is if you had a baby that you did not want to have, you would give birth to the baby and you would take it out. And forgive me, this is disturbing if you have kids, but you'd take it out and you would just leave it out to die. You would take it to the trash. And early Christians would go and wander the trash and pick up those babies. No one else did that, but they understood that the image of God was ingrained in every person and no one is overlooked or unwanted. And they went out of their way. And fourthly, the early Christians were sexually countercultural in a land where, where sex was viewed as power and just viewed to get ahead, the Christians said, no, 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 no. Sex only exists for the purpose and within the confines of marriage. It was built by God for a reason and this is its use and this is only its use. And that changed things. That empowered people. That is the culture that Paul steps into. That is the culture that Paul helps shape. That is the culture that spreads the gospel and begins to transform the world. The open secret of the good news of Christ is that there is a different way to live that is concrete and real. It is not a removed philosophical understanding. It is not a hypothetical. It is not a set of data points or a good way to believe. It is a real and true thing. And for the early believers, that was deeply ingrained in who they were. And I don't think I need to belabor the point for me and for us as the church today. We lack, I lack that kind of conviction that they brought. that when I stand in a world that is constantly screaming for my attention, that desires in every way it can think of to tell me my value, I look at the early believers who had flaws and faults and problems. Don't get me wrong, they fought all the time. There's lots of stuff there. But I look at that and I realize how far I have yet to go. So the question before us is what do we do? in regards to that. What do we do? What does our response look like as believers in the 21st century who are in and around Grand Rapids, Michigan? How does that impact the way that you and I live? How do we experience that deep mystery that Paul makes clear and known? 
I think first we need to be radically and racially inclusive. And honestly, a lot of this work comes from a, a variety of conversations with Tim Keller. So this is not, some of this is my own, but a lot of this is because I read a, listened to a lot of him as of late. But we need to be radically and racially inclusive people. That we need to be multicultural in the way the early church was. That we need to understand that what unites us in Christ is vastly more of a, a centripetal force that draws us in than what divides us based on the color of our skin or the accent we speak or the tone and culture and class by which we convey ourselves. And honestly, I think especially as a white Christian, that is hard for me to admit because sometimes I just presume that everyone will be like me. And there's moments when I need to realize that I need to be like everyone else. Because everyone has God's image and everyone has worth and we need to be inclusive at our core. We also need to be unapologetically apologetic. By that, I don't mean argumentative as the way it often gets played out, at least uh, in my experience in childhood. I grew up in the 80s and I think of apologetics courses as two people arguing about the role of science and faith and that, that has a place. But I mean apologetics in the way that Paul demonstrates it uh, in the book of Acts when he goes to Rome and he stands on Mars Hill and he says, that which you, I want to explain this picture of an unknown God. I want to explain what is unknown to you and give a defense for why I believe what I believe. Christianity is not removed. It's not abstract. It's not uh, thinking about the tooth fairy. It is real and based on concrete things that we can document and that functionally make life better. That's one of the great ironies of faith. Not ironies. That is something that continually amazes me. We can actually document people who go to church on a regular basis, people who are part of a faith community. We can document their lives being better. And there's surveys that do this time and time again. We don't need to be abrasive or abusive. But too often for fear of wanting to not come across as a jerk or as mean or as pushy, we don't defend our faith at all. We don't stand up for our faith at all. And I think we need to be unapologetic about who we are and what God has done in us if we want to see God's kingdom come forth. And lastly, we need to be people who are marked by grace to the point. It begins and it ends with grace. We live in a world that is happy to define you by what you can produce, who your kids are, who your family is, what your job title is, what's in your bank account, what car do you drive. But we as Christians have a countercultural message that we are defined first and foremost in the words that God says over Christ in Mark, that this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, in them I am well pleased. None of us do anything to get here. None of us have justified ourselves enough that we've earned our way into heaven or earned our way into God acceptance. God came to us in the midst of our rebellion to redeem us and restore us. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know uh, what struggles you have. I don't know what joys you have that have brought you this far in this week. Maybe the winter and blizzard was great. Maybe it was horrible. Maybe you are feeling exhausted and anxious and stressed because you were home for a week with your kids whom you really love, but also from whom you could use a break. 
Maybe you come feeling alive and healthy. Maybe you come thinking, no one knows what I bring. And if I shared it, you would all run away. The open message is the same to all of us. That there is a God who loves you, who restores you, and who says words of peace over you and invites you into his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord our God, we come not feeling worthy. We come having done wrong deeds and errors. We come having failed to live up to the opportunities before us but we come rejoicing because you are a parent who embraces us, who loves us and who accepts us and who has us on a long track towards fulfillment and restoration. We pray in this moment for ourselves that you restore and redeem us so that we can be your agents in this world, that we can be part of your kingdom, that we can be in the long line of prophets and evangelists, that we can be caregivers and healers, that we can be good news in our cities and our neighborhoods. God, do not let us be people who just hold our faith as an intellectual idea removed from our hearts and our passions and our hands and our feet, but convict us with love and restoration and call us to engage in the work of your kingdom, to deal with homelessness, to deal with broken marriages and relationships, to seek healing in ourselves and to seek racial reconciliation for those that we have alienated. God, be with us individually and be with us collectively as we follow you. Give us grace and peace. Amen.